Hello again. Welcome to another episode of Leading from Alignment with our good friend, John Mopoluski. And once again, our special guest, John, would you like to introduce him? Yes, we have Carl Vaders back with us for this pod. Carl was on our pod last week. And, uh, you know, Jim, I, I, uh, I was just uh, so impressed with uh, the content uh, that was shared, the demeanor in which it was shared. And I, I thought, boy, if, if you are leading a church of any size, you would be encouraged. You would be resourced very well by what Carl had to say and share with us in pod 120. Four, and he's he's come back uh, to um, uh, share with us again today in pod 125. Uh, I was wondering, Carl, if you, if you could just maybe give us like a, a minute or two recap of what you you shared with us in pod 124, and then we'll, we'll Jim will start us off with a, a, a series of questions. Sure, I can. Good to be back with you again. Uh, yeah, I've been pastoring for just over 40 years. Uh, in small churches all of that time. I tried to become a big church pastor. I, 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 every once in a while, somebody asked me, how did you become so enthusiastic about small churches? I said, well, I tried to do big and couldn't figure it out. So I had to figure out how to do small well. Um, and that's really where I came. I tried to do the big church thing and it just didn't happen for me. And I discovered that I'm really called and gifted and um, and, my, and, and, and fulfilled in ministry by doing ministry uh, in a smaller congregation where I got a little more of a hands-on rather than spending my time with staffing and with budgeting and all the big church things that have to be done. I'm grateful for those who have those big church gifts because if everybody pastored the way I did, we'd still all be worshiping in caves somewhere. Nothing would ever have gotten built. <laughs> But but I've also discovered my gifting is more in the small church alignment. And then I get to pastor other pastors by doing things like this and share this great uh, discovery that you can be small and healthy. Bottom line for me is I don't want churches to be small. I want small churches to be great. And I've, I see them becoming great all over the world. And many of them are who already are great and are healthy and doing great missional stuff. So let's get on with the work of ministry together. Right on. Carl, hearing you talk is like eating one Pringles potato chip. Uh, it just, I, I don't think it's ever going to be enough. I want to hear you talk more. And, and we got into about five questions last time, getting to know you and, and basic thoughts. But the one I want to start with is, what are the markers? You, you know, we talk about church health a lot less than we talk about church growth. So you say, what are the markers of a growing church? I think everybody goes, well, numbers. But it's harder to measure health in some ways, I think, because it's not quantifiable. It's qualifiable. So what Tell us some some markers that you look for that would indicate a church is healthy or or it needs work. Yeah, I, let me approach that from from two standpoints. First of all, I think that the we know what the markers are: uh, the Great Commandment, the Great Commission, mm. and then what we talked about last week—the idea of understanding our pastoral role as equipping the saints. I, I I call that the pastoral prime mandate. That's been my a little term that I put on it. So if we're doing the great commandment, loving God and loving others, doing the great commission, reaching out to reaching out to others, and if we're discipling the people to become disciple makers rather than doing it all ourselves as pastors, you you have a healthy church. Um, and like you say, it is it is hard to to measure health. Um, and the smaller it is, the harder it is to measure. There's a hmm. principle, uh, a sociological and anthropological principle called the law of large numbers which is the bigger the group is, the more predictably it behaves. Mm. So if you've got a group of 1,000 or 10,000, small percentage changes can really give you an indication of health or lack of health. But when you've got 20 people or 50 people, the, the numbers can swing wildly from Sunday to Sunday. 
And it's not an indicator of health. It's the nature of small size that you're going to have bigger variances in your numbers. So the numbers actually don't give you the information when you're small, the way they give you the information when you're big. So that's, mm, that's a big part of it as well. But, but what we often do is we start, we, we, we start with the big church. So for instance, um, uh, years ago, I read from a pastor who said he wanted to study the health of churches and what makes churches healthy and wasn't worried about numbers. So he said, so I sent out letters to the 100 biggest and fastest growing churches in the country to ask how they got there and then assess their health and didn't even throw a couple the way of a couple small, small churches. So he started with the assumption that the big churches must be the healthy ones. And that then his bias got confirmed because he started with big must be healthy. Mm. And so I think we often get it backwards. It's kind of like every time there's a, a close uh, football game or, or baseball game or basketball game or whatever, it can come down to the over, the last overtime shot that wins the game. And then from that point on, every commentary is about how the winning team did everything right and the losing team did everything wrong mm. until literally the last second they were even. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And it kind of feels like that in church some, sometimes too. We look around and we go, all the big churches are being asked how they got healthy and big and the small churches are basically assumed you must be doing something wrong and we're here to fix you rather than asking the healthy small church, how did you get healthy and how are you staying healthy and how is that working for you? So we have to start by looking at health first rather than looking at numbers first, but we often get that backwards. Well, that is so good. That is so rich. Um, you know, Carl, your, your book, The Grasshopper Myth, deals mm -hmm. with uh, one of the things it deals with is small thinking that often divides big and smaller churches. Um, we've seen that. I mean, I, I, uh, I think I've lost count of the number of smaller churches that we've worked with that have said we can't, we can't grow or we can't be the, the best version of ourselves because there's a big church down the street. And, and there's this somewhat of a bias, you know, or even a criticalness of a small church towards a larger church. And, I, and I've actually, believe it or not, I've seen that less in reverse almost. You know, I, 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 some of our clients that are larger churches, I don't hear them talking critically about smaller churches that much. It seems to be more the other way. But um, can you talk to us a little bit about the contributors to small to that small thinking? And, and you know, then I want to I have a follow up uh, to that as well, but you know what are what are some of the things that cause that conversation to happen the way it's happening? Yeah, there are. That's a great question because there are a handful of con contributors to that. And I and as you said, I the, even the subtitle of my first book is you know is about the small thinking that divides us. We, the, my my biggest concern when I started this ministry that was was that we small church leaders would have this conversation in the corner. And we would even further divide ourselves from our friends in big churches. Mm -hmm. and, um, the, there's a principle called the, the long tail in business. YouTube runs by this. So like uh, they've got a handful of viral videos that get billions of views, but they've got literally billions of videos that get a handful of views. And there are as many views of, the, of the, all the billions of small ones as there are views of the handful of big ones. Mm -hmm. So there's this big spike of the viral videos. And then there's this long tail of billions of videos that get a handful of views and YouTube knows they both matter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the long tail matters. 
And we in the church have the same thing. We have a we have half the body of Christ in this big spike of a handful of really large churches, but the other half of the body of Christ is in millions of small churches all around the world, and each half matters. Mm-hmm. So we we can't. It's interesting. I I think for the small church, it starts with what I'll call it self despising. The reason I titled my first book the Grasshopper Myth is from Numbers, right? That spies go into the land. Yeah. And 10 of them come back with a report that says, we can't take the land. There are giants in the land. And then it's, he, they say this, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. And as I point out in the book, the place they saw the grasshopper first was in their own mirror. Mm-hmm. And if you don't see a grasshopper in your mirror, no one else will see a grasshopper in you. If, if you take a look at Paul's body analogy, it doesn't start with the hand despising the foot. It starts with the foot saying, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It starts with self-despising. Take a look at it. I never noticed it until I started doing this study. It doesn't start with the top down, top despising the bottom. It starts with the bottom despising its own place in the body. And so if we can look at that and realize we are not lesser in the body of Christ because of our size, then then that self-criticism stops. And then anything that I read, for instance, in a big church book, that appears to ignore or simply not pay attention to the value of small, that's the thing I zone in on. Like I can't, I can't appreciate the value of 90% of that book because he said that one phrase a long way that made me feel bad. Yeah. But if I can get rid of the grasshopper in my mirror, I can just put that aside and go, okay, that's just not for me. And I'm going to get the benefit out of the rest of it. And we can bring a little more unity back to the body of Christ as far as the size issue is concerned. Anyway, I'll leave the rest of the division in the body of Christ to you guys. Yeah, you know. So, so Carl, if if you if you're leading a church uh, that is is under two fifty, and you find yourself thinking ill of larger churches, or I, I think sometimes it's jealousy, right? Um, what's a way forward? How can a pastor get himself over that hump where he he can actually do what you just described? You know, this beautiful understanding of actually God needs large churches and he needs smaller churches to get his job, to get the job done. How, how does a pastor get from being stuck in, in a bad thinking process about it to something healthier? What would you, how would you bring them along? Yeah, we, we need to understand what it is that small churches actually do contribute to the body of Christ because we contribute a okay. lot. There's a reason why half the body of Christ chooses to go to smaller congregations. Uh, most of them have options that they could go to bigger places and choose to go to smaller. Where I live in Orange County, California, we're, we're you know, half an hour drive from some of the biggest and most well-known churches that began movements. The original Vineyard, the original Calvary Chapel, Crystal yeah. Cathedral, Saddleback Church. I mean, it's yeah. just crazy. It's not just a place where big things happen, but where big movements have begun. The original you know, Angelus Temple, the original uh, Four Square Church is just around the corner from us. I mean, everything's so close here. And so it's really easy to look around and go, well, I'm not, I'm not of value if I'm not producing this big, big world movement. Uh, but in fact, we're not all called right. to you know, change the entire world. We're called to bring change to whatever segment of the world God has given us influence over. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think we've got this um, I think we have this unhealthy view even of what faith is. And we're sometimes told by, by, yeah, by ourselves or by other pastors or, or leaders, you know, you, you know, you've got to have, what was the big term that came out about 10 years, 10, 15 years ago from the 
one of the books, The Big Hairy Audacious Goal from yeah. Good to Great from Jim Collins. Great book. Yeah, yeah. Great book, by the way. But all of a sudden, everybody had to have a BHAG. Everybody had to have a big, hairy, audacious goal. Yeah. No, you don't. <laughs> the, the business book may have said that, but the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say you must pursue massive numbers in order to have faith. The Bible mm. talks about faith being being regular obedience and consistency. Uh, be, be faithful <clears throat> in the small things the Bible tells us to do. So we need to we need to reconfigure our priorities from less of a business standpoint and less maybe even of an American culture standpoint mm. and more of a biblical standpoint. And when we can see that we are being faithful to God's call on our life, then I think we can settle into a place and go, I'm, 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 I'm not comfortable here, but I am content here. The Bible talks about contentment, but let, there's always more to do. There's always a, a, another goal to reach. There's, uh, as long as there's one person in my community, and now with the internet, as long as there's one person in the world who doesn't know Jesus, my job is not done. Um, so I'm never going to be comfortable, but I'm going to be content in where God has put me. And it's it, the whole thing is a mind shift, uh, yeah. mindset shift that needs to take place. Uh, yeah. And without that mindset shift, without understanding that it can happen, you're not going to get there. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, I try to encourage uh, pastors of smaller churches with, I, and I, I wonder what you think about this, Carl. I, I say, look, your, your competition isn't the church down the road. Right. Your competition is yourself becoming the best version of yourself possible, the healthiest version of yourself possible. That's your competition. And I don't I wonder what you think about that thought. Is that a helpful thought, do you believe, to, to share with uh, smaller churches? Yeah, un unquestionably so. I mean, take a look at the big, you know, take a look at the big church pastor that you're thinking about in your head right now, all listeners and watchers. Right. And you've got somebody in your head or a handful of them. Well, okay, yeah, they've got this great spotlight on them, their ministry. Every time they write a book, every time they preach a sermon, it goes viral online, or so it seems. But every mistake they make is amplified as well. Yeah. Um, and that, that spotlight that seems wonderful when you're doing well is absolutely atrocious uh, when things go badly. And and every uh, so how many of how many have we seen fall? And we think all these big church pastors are falling. Well, percentage-wise, small church pastors are falling just as well, but the spotlight is on the big ones. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've always thought, uh, I get why people pursue power. I get why people pursue money. I do not understand why people pursue fame. I don't get the upside. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it's right to pursue power or money. I just get it. Yeah. I don't even get it for fame. So the idea that somehow I want to have this massive platform, I, I guess there's impact. I don't know, but whatever it is. But yeah, there's a there's there is a, at least an equal downside to the large size, and then for those who do have very large platforms, the big church pastors, those that have been able to maintain their character through all of the adulation, I have huge respect for. Yeah, yeah. Because my I my ego gets inflated so quickly. I mean, I get on the podcast with you guys, and you want me back a second time, and think I'm the most awesome person who ever lived. <laughs> Because they actually wanted me back for part two, right? That, that, that's how quick my ego engages. <laughs> so I can't imagine what it would be like if I was talking to 10,000 people on a weekend. Yeah. So God, God knows what he's doing. He's, put, he's, he's placed us where we, where we need to be, and we can have great impact wherever God puts us. 
I was just reading in Proverbs 27 this morning about the crucible for silver and and gold, but but it's the praise that that really tests a man. That that's what oh, yeah. you, know, you find out who you are when someone says you're the best, you know. And and again, I think sometimes we can look at what God has done and say that must that guy must be really smart, or that guy must be really talented, or that guy or saying their their calling is different than than the guy next to them. Doesn't make them you know greater or lesser. It just makes them different. You know, yeah. I uh, I was a part of a, a my first staff position was in uh, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, church of thirty thousand people, and one of the neighbors wrote a, a an article that was in a, a widely uh, known Christian magazine at the time, still today. It was called "Living in the Shadow of a Mega Church," and I I remember thinking, okay, you know, he's mad at us, and I'm going to read the scandalous accusation against how we're all compromising, and that's why we have big numbers, or whatever. And it wasn't. He was talking about the benefits of, of a small church that's in the shadow of a mega church. Literally, as the sun set, the shadow of this church literally touched his <laughs> building. That's how close it was. And so, yeah. ten thousand cars go by his church to to go to another church, and and it was his journey of how how he you know discovered how to deal with it. But the church that I served had a million dollar Easter pageant that did 11 performances in seven days. And you had to have tickets for it, but they were free, but you had to have tickets. So he just called and said, I want hundred tickets. And he told all of his people, invite all your friends to this. And then next week, invite them back to our church. So they come to the big church, watch the play, you know, someone gets saved, but they, they connected to relationship, not to performance, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the relationship, they, they just, you know, it's like me going to see the Passion of the Christ with a group of people, some believers, some not. I don't I don't expect they're going to move to California and go to Mel Gibson's church. But if they make a decision or they're impacted by that, that encounter with that truth, I assume they're going to come back to mind. So have you have you ever done that? Have you ever, I, like you're talking about in, you know, eight miles south of Disneyland, you're going to have some massive productions and massive outreaches. And, you know, have you ever taken a group of people to another church, but then kind of leveraged your advantage of relationship afterwards? Yeah, we did that. Uh, when when I the first time I ever heard the name Rick Warren uh, was when I first moved here, and I heard there's this church that like every two weeks is moving to a new site, and every time they move to that new site, they have more and more people. How in the world is that happening? And then hey, he's putting on a pastor school. I'm going to go see how this guy is doing it. And I went there and sat in a room with a couple of hundred other pastors, and this guy named Rick Warren started talking to us, and he gave us loose leaf notes that eventually became the Purpose Driven Church. Mm. Uh, but I, I was at the, one of the first five or six uh, you know, pastor schools that he did. And it was out of that that we, I, I took a lot of that home and brought it to our church. And because we were trying to figure out what our next step should be. It, this was a time the church was very unhealthy. We were trying to come out of five pastors in 10 years. I was trying to get yeah. my feet back underneath me. And of all the stuff we studied at the time, his was the only one that the, the leaders of the church says, this doesn't feel like theory. This feels like stuff that's working in practice. This feels, he's, he's a practitioner, he's actually doing it, and this feels more boots on the ground to us. Right. And so we, we adapted a lot of the principles, and, 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 you know, Rick gets a ton of flack, most of it, I think, undeserved. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and a lot of people, you know, look at that and go, oh, Hawaiian shirts. Well, that's the solution, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Khaki pants, sandals, exactly. man. Yeah, Jesus wore sandals. That must be it. Exactly. Yeah. No socks. No socks. That's what that's what's going to turn my church around. It, it, we, when we took all these little surface things and thought that that was the solution. And if you read his stuff, he's very clear that that's not the issue. He talks about, yeah, it's how we do it, but that's not the issue. The principles are the five principles that I learned in Bible college that I kind of set aside and went, okay, that's underneath everything. We'll let it go. And he brought it front and center and went, no, 
worship, evangelism, fellowship, ministry, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. He put them right up front and said, this is all that matters. What purpose-driven means. And now we got people out there going, they think purpose-driven means we're wearing you know, a, a Hawaiian shirts and no socks. <laughs> and it, it, it's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. It's yeah. about these five purposes of God that are clearly defined through the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. He yeah. really helped bring that back front and center for me and helped our church reestablish a mission-centered focus in our church. So we we di- we took a couple things from him about style because we're in Orange County, so it fits here as well. Yeah. But what we took from him was not that primarily. It was, let's get back mission-focused again. And it looks different at our church than it looks at his church. Yeah, that's so I'm, good. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I do own a Hawaiian shirt, and Rick Warren is the reason. <laughs> <laughs> Never went sockless, because as we're speaking right now, it's minus one. Yes. degrees outside with the wind chill factor. So I socks are more of a survival technique than a, than a fashion yeah. statement here. <laughs> so Carl, uh, we're, we're actually butting up against time again. It seems like our time with you has gone by so quickly. I have one more question for you. And then Jim is mm-hmm. going to uh, wrap us up and bring us to conclusion. You know, I think, I don't think it uh, is a, a secret that pastors are on the move in uh in 2022 i we're seeing a tremendous amount of transition uh from and some of the transition isn't from one pastoral uh, assignment to another pastoral assignment a lot of the attrition is i'm leaving pastoral vocational ministry altogether um what words of encouragement or advice do you have for pastors who are in that spot, and they're really wrestling with transition. What would you say to them, uh, real quick? Yeah, several years ago, an older pastor talked to me, and he used this phrase. He said, "We need to learn how to transition without relocation." Mm. And and the point he made was, um, if the Lord is going to send you to a place where He's going to keep you long term, which is typically healthier for both the church and the pastor. Yeah. You can't stay static because you've got to come up with new stuff constantly. You need to continue to grow in your faith. You need not, mm-hmm. not just reading the Bible for sermon material. If you are growing in your faith and you are going deeper in your faith, then you will have more to share with others. And then when times of transition come, um, the first two, first two or three times that I hit transition points at the church that I'm at now, previously, every transition was a transition to relocate. It was, mm-hmm. that was what God called. But the first two or three times here, I, I had this, this relocation uh, uh, muscle memory, right? That I wanted to follow. <laughs> yeah. But I felt like, but I'm not being called to leave. So what's happening here? And then I heard that phrase, transition without relocation. So let's take the church through a transition. Let's do that together. So we renew it, we refresh it, we restart it, but we're still in the same physical, geographical church <clears throat> location. So I think for a lot of pastors out there, it's um, so some of it is just outright discouragement. Some of you are yeah. in toxic places that you need to leave. I was yeah. in one that I had to leave. Yes. I understand that completely. But I think for most of us, we need to learn how to transition without relocating, help our church mm. to go through a transitional period, get refresh, renew. And, and, and that is a, that is a very challenging skill set to do. But once you do it, you recognize the value of it. And then the next time becomes a little bit easier and it's a healthier way forward for both the pastor and the congregation. Oh, that is so good. Transition without relocation. That's, that's book number five, Carl. I'm just saying that's book number five. <laughs> so good. And it, 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 it's so good. And, 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 you know, I think that um, 
I wonder about the role, and I know we really have to close here, but I'm just wondering about the role of mentors and coaches in the lives of pastors and, and, and helping them think through that. Can you just, in 30 seconds, Kyle, what do you think about the role of a mentor or a coach in helping pastors, even with that part of the transition without relocation? Could you just speak to that very quickly? We do almost all of ministry alone. Uh, as pastors, and the smaller the church is, the more likely that is the case. Yeah. And no, it's not just enough to lean on our spouse. We need others in our lives. Yeah. So pastors are the least pastored people in the church. Mm. And just as your congregation, as you tell your congregation members that they need a pastor, pastor, you need a pastor. You need people who are alongside you, and you need people who speak uh, from above you spiritually and emotionally who can speak into your life, who can call you on uh, your, your lack of passion or your, mm-hmm. your dip into sinful areas, whatever that might be. If you don't have someone who can call you on your stuff, and if you don't have someone who's a friend, who's an equal that you can lean across onto, you will burn out in ministry. Mm-hmm. We don't have that help and we need it. And it's not going to find you. You yeah. have to pursue it. 100%. Thank you for that. We really appreciate it, uh, Carl. Jim, you want to wrap us up? Yeah, join us again for another episode. Uh, I'm just kidding. I wish you could, Carl. It's been it's been great. It, and again, I, I said this on the last episode, but if we were going to now read some of the things, some of the books we've referred to that you've uh, uh, referred to, the, the grasshopper myth being one of them, what? How, how about we get a hold of your material and kind of continue the conversation that way with you? Sure. Uh, I'm my my main online home is carlvaders.com. So Carl with a K, V is in Vic, Vaders is victory, A-T-E-R-S.com. I'm also on, the nice thing about having a name like Carl Vaders is I own my name everywhere. So I'm Carl yeah. Vaders on <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, you name it. If you can find my name at Gmail, at Yahoo, you name it. It's there. You <laughs> own it. Put my name incorrectly, you'll find me. <laughs> right on. And just just before we close, Carl, what is what is the name of your cat? Ah, well, he is no longer with us. But oh. yes, with the last name with the last name Vader's, we had a cat for years that we named Darth. He was a completely black cat. We named him Darth, and we did so because I thought at some point one of my kids is going to want to name their their son Darth, and I didn't no. want a Darth Vader's grandson. And I figured. <laughs> I figured if you name the cat Darth, they won't name a grandkid Darth after the cat. Right on. Right on. And cats are a lot cheaper than donkeys. So I, I, I appreciate that. That's good. Well, hey, um, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, yeah. Carl. I, it's rich, man. You're, you're like drinking out of a fire hose and we can't write fast enough. I think it confirms some great things, opens up some new conversations. I look forward to reading your material here real soon. And God bless you. And John, God bless you. And God bless our listeners and watchers. I think this episode is going to go far and wide. And I hope that you wouldn't mind pressing that share button. A little simple thing that can change somebody's life. Um, Probably the way you found out about this podcast is someone sent you it and it helped you. And you listen to it now. You watch it now. You uh, do the favor to somebody else. And we are rooting for you, praying for you, cheering you on. Proud of you. Love you the whole nine yards. And as you just continue your journey to lead from life.